2: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards.
1: Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm delighted to share this series is in partnership with Heck. Being an independent and family-owned business, they pull out all the stops to bring that farmer's market quality to the supermarket shelf. We all love a barbecue. And with Heck's new range of veggie burgers, whether vegan or vegetarian, thankfully there's absolutely no need to miss out on all the deliciousness. Gone are the days of tasteless veggie sizzlers as Heck has released its veggie sausage flavors we all know and love as burgers. Choose from the exotic Bollywood and sweet fusion flavors or the veggie beetroot and super green options and rock up to that barbecue with a smile. You can find Hex Veggie Burgers in the major supermarkets or online at hexfood.co.uk. Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to Food for Thought, a podcast on a mission to equip you with all the evidence-based advice you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, Founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic, and author of Renourish and Top of Your Game. In each episode, I'll be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authoritative voices in health, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. Going to the doctor isn't most people's favourite thing to do, but they're here to help us. And whether it's that embarrassing wart or that contraception discussion that you've been putting off for months, let me reassure you that they have seen and heard it all, so there's no need to be shy. Joining us today to help us better understand the most common conditions affecting all of us is Dr. Sarah Kayat, an NHS and private general practitioner and resident doctor on ITV's This Morning show. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, I think we wanted to really have you on, obviously, with your wonderful expertise to kind of discuss the fact that whilst the internet is an incredible thing... Even the smallest symptoms sometimes can turn into a kind of self-diagnosis, can't they? I mean, when Google's involved, it can spiral.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think Google comes with great advantages, but also some some issues. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of patients, I love them taking control of their own health. I love that they want to know more about their health and mm-hmm. will go ahead and research it and things like that. The problem's sometimes lie when the first answer is always brain tumor or oh, yeah. something really sinister and people yeah. come in and have worried about it for so long but really they just needed to come and have a chat with us about it
1: yeah i think sometimes i've even been that classic person that said well not not quite with the brain tumor but i have thought i've literally developed develop some kind of serious illness over google and i've gone and to saying All right i've looked at the symptom i'm pretty sure i am this yeah <laughs> The thing is, is, sometimes that's really
2: useful because sometimes mm. it's something that I would never have thought about and actually it, it acts as a prompt and that's a good thing. Yeah. Other times it it's anxiety driving, so it's oh, yeah. got to be
1: taken with a pinch of salt. Well, knowing just how hard you've worked to become a doctor, um, could we delve into the most common reasons that people, first of all, see their GP? Because hopefully we can help people either seek treatment sooner if if they need it or perhaps consider other means if it's unnecessary to go with, really.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to chat about all the all the all the fun stuff, the weird, the wonderful, and the normal. You must see it all. I do. I see, hear, feel, smell it all.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So on that front, <laughs> smell it all. I don't know about that bit, but um, what is the most common thing? Do you think?
2: Um, I, I do think headaches is a very common one, which is why I mentioned the brain tumor because that's ah, what everyone always thinks.
1: Really. Uh,
2: but headaches are often something really benign. You know, perhaps it's just. They've not drank enough water or mm-hmm. they've been staring at the screen too long, perhaps it's posture. You know, it's usually something really quite basic.
1: Or well, quite lifestyle related. Exactly.
2: The majority of what I do is lifestyle related mm. anyway.
1: Mm.
2: I think that the issue with, with headaches is that there are some very sinister causes of them, and okay. most people want to rule those things out. Yeah. And a simple trip to the GP will be able to rule that out for them and that's all they need to do. Come in, have a chat and we can sort it out pretty
1: quickly. So how would you indicate when a headache becomes more serious then? Well, I mean, migraines are we talking about?
2: So migraines are, a, a you know, a type of headache mm. and they are serious in terms of affecting quality of life but they're not necessarily serious in terms of their underlying pathology and what's mm. going on. Um, there are red flags when it comes to headaches and so we know that if you've got a persistent headache that's only worsening or it feels like a big thunderclap is the term we use so you know really severe that can be an underlying um, you know serious concern sometimes it can be in relation to position so if we know that if you bend forward or you strain or you uh, you know cough and it's really painful then that can be an indication that there could be something to do with pressure within
1: the brain. It's but, so interesting because I read that one in seven people get migraines.
2: Yeah, so migraines are very common. The problem with migraines is sometimes it's hard to differentiate between a migraine okay. and a, a bad headache. Right. But most migraines come into three different categories. Yeah, so, okay, because
1: there are different types. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. So you've got the most common one, which is um, a, just a simple migraine without an aura. So that's a one-sided, often one-sided, throbbing headache, front of the head, mm. and associated with that you get the nausea the vomiting that I just need to lie down in a dark room it's horrible (laughs) Mm. but then you can also get a migraine with an aura and that's where you get a little bit of a warning sign that something's about to happen so some people get weird flashing lights and their vision changes and then the third type which is slightly less common but interesting is a migraine without the headache so a silent migraine so you get all the aura symptoms and the nausea and all of those things but don't actually get the headache with it and that can be quite confusing for someone to diagnose
1: yeah is that quite rare that
2: one Um, it's one of the three most common types but it it is the rarer of the three yeah
1: no it's fascinating because I've had a lot of friends over the years that have always suffered from migraines and I I do hear you on the fact that perhaps muscle aches and tension and we're more stressed than ever before in society and if you think about poor posture sitting at a desk Mm. all day There must be so many things. But I can also imagine you get a lot of the common cold um, queries. This is the stereotypical things that you're also associated with at the GP. Is it something that can actually be treated by a doctor?
2: So I think when it comes to kind of colds, coughs, viral illnesses, it really depends on the severity And whether it's viral or bacterial in nature.
1: Right, let's cut, let's break that down. Okay, Okay. so the difference between the two.
2: With a bacterial infection, it can often be a little bit more serious because it needs antibiotics in a lot of cases to treat it. So if we take a cough, for example, which can usually be viral in nature, but can sometimes be bacterial you'll often have you know quite a a high grade fever with it if it's bacterial it can that fever can last a few Mm. days it won't be getting better by itself after after a week it'll only really be getting worse and you'll start feeling really unwell whereas with a virus you tend to have a bit of a cold with it it's lingering it's a bit annoying (laughs) but you can (laughs) can get on with life with Mm. it you don't tend to have this protracted fever and cough cold remedies or you know a little bit of paracetamol some rest will
1: we'll resolve it. Well, it's interesting because I also, obviously there's a lot of talk now about antibiotics in general. Um, and are we still over-prescribing them then? Like you've just said for the common cold, are people still being prescribed antibiotics a lot?
2: Yeah, there, there's been a, a big cross-sectional study that showed that actually one-fifth of our antibiotics that we prescribe may not have n- needed to be prescribed. Yeah. That's still a huge number. Yeah. And I think it's, It's a matter of both kind of patient expectations, but also doctors maybe not feeling quite comfortable enough to diagnose it as just a virus. And I think the two together, plus a lot of kind of societal
1: pressures... Probably just better attitude. to be safe than sorry, surely. Is that the attitude, maybe?
2: But possibly. I think um, we get very worried about things like sepsis or meningitis and all these kind of very big scary things. And so we mm. try to follow guidelines where possible. Mm. But often guidelines start to sway when it says, you know, use your, use your clinical judgment. And yeah. so you've got this patient in front of you saying, it's not getting better. I feel really unwell. I'd really like antibiotics. And, and sometimes that is appropriate. In other times, what I like to do is a delayed prescription. So if it's not better in one week, here is prescription for mm, that point. Mm. And that's my little trick of getting around yeah, it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good idea. There's a lot to be said for taking some time out, guys, listening. I mean, rest is something a lot of people are not getting enough of at the moment and it can't be helping. And what about the flu jab? Because mm. it, that's it's relatively new-ish, I'd say, in terms of how much we prescribe we use it?
2: I think it's been going on for, a, we've had it for a long time okay. but it's just that I think we're now trying to push public health campaigns to encourage yeah. people to to get it, it, it done yeah. and, and the fact that you feel that it's quite new to me is a really reassuring sign that the public health campaigns are actually getting out there to people. Yeah. It's still the best thing we have to protect against the flu and the flu is so different to just your common cold. It's serious, it's severe and, and in certain groups it can kill so it's important
1: that if you are in one of those health risk groups that you do get
2: the flu jab.
1: Yeah, and what about if you don't even have the flu? Because I hear a lot of people saying that they work perhaps in a school environment or they work like me in a nutrition clinic where I've got lots of various people coming in, not everyone is 100% well. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend people like that as a preventative measure? Oh, 100%. So I think
2: it, it, on the NHS, certainly, we it's offered to carers, for example. It's offered to healthcare uh, professionals who are in contact with people a lot. And for those groups of people, it's it's really actively encouraged. Interestingly, you know, 50% of people with the flu don't exhibit symptoms. So I might be walking around with the flu, feeling absolutely well, but passing it on to all my patients unless I get that flu jab. So it's really important that if you're offered one,
1: rabbit it's so true because I mean if you think back to hundreds and hundreds of years ago when infectious diseases were rife you know and everybody was dying from the plague or we're so lucky today to have these methods
2: we're so lucky and and the sad thing is sometimes that we've got we've got the resources for it but people aren't taking up things like the MMR vaccine so you know we know that there's a big rise in measles at the moment. And and we can only seem to be putting that down to this big anti-vax movement. And I can only just, you know, really try and encourage parents, encourage people uh, to get vaccines yeah. where, where, where they can. It's
1: interesting. A previous guest that we actually had on in series two, Dr. David Robert Grimes, he works with the, the HPV vaccine mm-hmm. lot. And he said that it's terrible the numbers have slipped so much with people not taking taking them up on it.
2: Yeah, and it, it seems crazy that we have an opportunity to prevent something like cancer, you know, yeah. the, the thing that everyone's scared about. Yeah and we have a way that really works yeah. to prevent it. And and people because of I guess it's it's possibly due to education. Maybe mm. we're not doing our role well enough to educate people, but I also feel that, you know, there's there's a lot of fear around vaccines, but we've had them for so long. We should really embrace it.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of conspiracy theories with everything, I think, mm. in life. And I was going to ask you as well about the antibiotics, just touching on that before mm. we move on. Do you think there's a possibility of them becoming ineffective in the future because doctors are, have used them so so often? Do some people become immune to, to well, them?
2: Sadly, it's not a in future thing. It's happening actively oh, now. No. We know that uh, certain types of pneumonia, tuberculosis, gonorrhoea. I don't know if you've seen the big super gonorrhoea oh, headlines. Have been, so yeah, it's it's there and it's there now. We know that overuse um, or inappropriate use in both humans and animals have has kind of spurred this on. Now, resistance is is a natural process. It happens anyway, but mm. when we're inappropriately inappropriately using antibiotics, mm-hmm. that speeds up that process yeah. and so what's really scary is something that we would consider really simple to treat. You know, in 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 the next few years, might be a minefield. I think the WHO, the World Health Organization, mm. has stated that antibiotic resistance is our, one of the number one threats to to us globally. Gosh, it's scary. That's given me goosey. I know, to me too. <laughs>
1: me too. It just goes to show how far we've come, but how we still don't know the long term effects of things that we start using. You know, we don't have hundreds of years of data using these things. I suppose so. But moving on from the scary (laughs) subject, but obviously anyone listening, definitely get the advice of your health professional. Um, When it comes to urinary tract infections, so UTIs, Mm -hmm. something that I hear a lot of women, especially in my clinic, complaining of. And I get asked all the time about cranberry juice, helping to Mm -hmm. cure them. And my response is usually that there's not enough evidence on this, Um, although no harm. If you just want to drink, drink some. It's probably not going to do much. How would you treat someone who comes to see you with a suspected UTI? So most UTIs can be diagnosed clinically based on the symptoms.
2: So we know that if you're, you know, having pain on passing urine, Mm -hmm. you're going more frequently... There's any blood in there. You're feeling more urgency to pass urine. Yeah, yeah. The likelihood is you have a urinary tract infection. Yeah. But one way to then be able to confirm that would be to get a little dipstick. So yeah. you can ask the patient just do a little urine sample right there and then. I can dip it, see if there is one. If there is, then we can treat it with antibiotics. If there isn't, we might need to invest
1: investigate other yeah. causes. Because it's important, isn't it? Because I I remember and this is a very anecdotal case, but mm. I had one once that spread to my kidneys because I refused to go. I just don't go to the doctor <sighs> enough. But I was university i was like it's my exam time i can't get down there and i left it too late
2: yeah that 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 is the problem if it travels up to the kidneys you can start to become really unwell mm-hmm. you get fevers rivals mm-hmm. the the antibiotic treatment becomes a lot more complicated as you know you're i remember being on the floor in agony yeah it, it's awful yeah um so as with most things if it doesn't go away you go see your doctor yeah
1: yeah i mean what what is the cause of it so is it true that it's having too much sex or are some people just more predisposed to getting them than others I don't like the idea of it being too much sex. It's, it's more <laughs> just that
2: when you have sex, we've got a lot of mulching of lots of bits of our bodies so together. True. So true. it's often the bacteria that are around Traveling. the skin and that around the bottom area yeah. that travels up through our urethra, so our urinary yeah. tube. And in women, that tube is a lot smaller than um, in men, yeah. so we're more prone to it. Oh, it's so
1: unfair. So, it's so unfair. Um, when it comes to, this is a very serious topic of obviously patients wanting to come to see you to discuss mental health problems. Um, we've, we've touched on anxiety, um, OCD, depression. What initial advice or treatment do you recommend? I mean, you've got a very short space of time
2: it's so important that it's all treated on an individual basis mm. with with mental health it, it can depend on you know the background what they've already tried what's going on in their lives and i think you know giving a very prescriptive thing to everybody is, isn't the way forward everyone needs to kind of be listened to and to, to get this kind of mutually agreeable management plan rather than just it being, well, here's the medication, off you go. I'm
1: so pleased to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> everyone is very unique.
2: <laughs> no, exactly. And I, I think it's really, it's really unfair to, to assume everyone's walks of lives have been the same. Mm. But also, some people come in wanting medication for it. Other people come in thinking that's the worst thing that they can ever be offered. And you really have to gauge where that person's at. Mm. You can't just assume.
1: No, that's so... And is it your role to then refer to a psychologist? Does that happen frequently?
2: I'm really trigger happy with my psychology (laughs) referrals, if I'm honest. I think, I mean, most people will have already tried a lot of self-help things, but Mm. if they haven't, you know, I'll discuss with them first about things that they can be doing to try and manage it themselves but if they're at a point where they've either tried all those things or it's actually really severe, they need to be seen by yeah. a specialist. And I, I honestly, basically, everyone that comes in, yeah. whether it's for like a toenail
1: <laughs> infection or, or you know, thrush, yeah. they yeah. all get seen by a psychologist yeah. by
2: the end of my consultation. I do the
1: same in my clinic, do you know what's hilarious? It's hilarious. This is honestly, but everybody has a relationship with food and mice as well. Mm. But it takes me back to, I mean, this is a good 10 plus years ago when I first went to GP when I was very young. I was about 17, 18. And I was prescribed antidepressants when actually at the time uh, I was very malnourished. I was in the music industry. I think I should have seen a psychologist Mm. or just been told to see a nutritionist, actually, which was interesting. So do you think times have changed a lot then? We're taking it more seriously now. I really hope so. Mm -hmm. Um, There's been studies to
2: show that the rate of... Well, there's been an increase in mental health concerns in general practice by about 85%. That's huge. And so I really hope that doctors are responding to that appropriately. I mean, I know I certainly have come across it a lot more and I feel that, you know, potentially, if you don't feel comfortable around mental health, you need to become comfortable. You need Mm. to become comfortable quickly. Mm. You need to do whatever training you need to take in order to get to that point because especially in London where I practice... Everyone has anxiety. I have anxiety. Everyone yeah, yeah, does. We and all you, do. especially you, with social
1: media yeah. now. I think everybody gets it.
2: You're, you're not human if you don't because mm-hmm. life is really difficult. Everyone's always switched on now. And, you know, if you're managing it, brilliant. But honestly, there are so many people that aren't. And I think it it's You don't just... have
1: to be unwell to see a therapist. No, exactly.
2: And it's interesting in the States. Um, everyone kind of sees one prophylactically.
1: That's what I'd heard. Yeah. I knew it. I said that as a phrase in an episode I've done before and someone said, like, I've never heard of that before. And I was like, I'm sure everyone in the States sees a therapist. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Well, please, uh, any listeners. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've certainly seen most, you know, most of my patients who are stateside, they're like, my therapist says this and this. I'm yeah. like, oh, okay, tell me about it. And it turns out, you know, most people there are just seeing one because that's okay to do yeah and I think here there's still a slight stigma around it and I'd love us to get to the point where everyone's just you know if you can't if you can afford it you're seeing one yeah and if you can't afford it you're seeing one on the NHS yeah. so yeah, way, yeah, you're seeing no one. <laughs> I, I think that's
1: a brilliant brilliant response it's been taking a lot more seriously and I think the reason people are coming forward is because of all the campaigns we've, we've had a lot of unfortunately very public suicides in the last year um and we've always had performers, of course, and celebrities being very public with mm. that kind of thing. We've all seen people break down in the media. But when it comes to day-to-day lives and all of us going on about our jobs, you know, we're not really talking about it as much. And now I, I feel a real shift. Very positive.
2: That's really good to hear. Because I think, I guess, in, in terms of my clinic, you know, I, I see it a, a lot because people will only come to me when it gets to that point that What's they the feel main they need thing to. that but- you see? I'd say a a lot of anxiety. And Mm. the thing is, is anxiety often drives depression, too. So Mm. they can often be mixed up together. Mm. Um, But I do see a a lot of a lot of anxiety. And it may even come in the form of a health anxiety. So, you know, constantly worrying that they have an underlying condition. But really it's not the condition that's the problem it's it's their it's their state of mind at that point
1: yeah of course um on on another kind of note that links I get a lot of people that get very anxious around the summer time of year anyway Mm. especially with the rise of hay fever do you get more and more people coming in saying they suffer from hay fever because I heard a stat like 10 million or something out there now suffering and that the normal (laughs) over-the-counter stuff just isn't doing the job
2: So hay fever is one of the more common allergies um, Mm. and... Often it's just about trying to find the right treatment for you. Um, So we'll often find that a combination of nasal sprays, antihistamines, eye drops will work, but people will usually just try one, that doesn't work, try the next, it doesn't work. Uh, But in combination, often they do. There are prescription strength ones as well. So if it's not working from the -the over-the-counter things, and your pharmacist will be really good at being able to tell you um, what to try. But if that's not working, there are prescription-based things. And if it's really not working and it's starting to affect you in terms of your quality of life. Yeah, because that's,
1: yeah, yeah, that, that is a big mm. problem.
2: There are um, immunotherapy, so mm-hmm. that's where you're given kind of small amounts, small and increasing amounts of the thing that you're allergic to mm. um, under controlled environments. Mm-hmm.
1: And Is you that now widely a- available? Because I remember being at university doing immunology mm. and immunotherapy was only just coming into the kind of light it, it is offered
2: it's offered in most allergy clinics now so yeah. um it's widely available but just not by a gp themselves right. it would have to be referred to an allergy clinic yeah um and often what the problem is is that you have to have that treatment done about three months before it starts with hay fever <laughs> and most people aren't thinking about the hay fever before it starts. it's too so, cold exactly <laughs> it's too cold they don't care yeah. what's happening with bees yeah um and so it takes a little bit of a, a foresight
1: Edge. okay what about um this is something i've heard and this may make me sound extremely stupid, but Vaseline on your nostrils...
2: Yeah, that's not a stupid thing at all, yeah. actually. So, yes, it, it simply works by trapping the pollen. So um, it, there's no kind of exciting science behind <laughs> it. It's just that the stickiness traps the pollen before it gets into your no- nasal passages so yeah. it doesn't uh, react. And the same as things like wearing wraparound sunglasses, to tra- <laughs> as, as trendy as they can be, <laughs> um, just to avoid it going into the eyes. And, yeah, well, you know. it's
1: almost like when you cut an onion, you just want to cover your eyes or do anything you can to stop that Yeah, exactly. Onion, p- pungy- kind of um thing what about certain types of pollen are there different types that we need to be aware of um and and another question that I didn't actually have prepared for you so I find I was I never had hay fever growing up in the countryside never but in the city in London I really suffer from it badly Mm. is there a link between pollution
2: well um it it could be an element of pollution but it could also be an element of the type of pollen that you're allergic to so Mm. it's possible that Um, you may be allergic to a certain pollen in that area and not in in a Mm. different area. So we know, for example, I think grass pollen is probably the most common yeah. allergy but yeah. you can also be allergic to you know tree pollens okay. birch and you know various oh, different things that yeah. come out at different
1: times of the year yeah okay no it's so fascinating and and getting ill over the summer I mean that's one of the terrible things that no one wants you expect it almost in the winter but when you're on holiday it's just it's a totally different ball game isn't it where would people go for advice when they're abroad because you hear all kinds of horror stories.
2: Yeah, um, I guess it does depend on where you are. So, you know, within Europe, we've got you know, fairly robust um, guidances and things like that in terms of if doctors. But I would always say that if you're not sure, you can always go online to the NHS websites or the patient.co.uk websites, Ooh. and all of those will give you you know information about whatever it is that you're you're feeling, and and it'll guide you as to whether you need to actually be seen by a doctor yeah. or not. So you might want to just go there first, yeah. and then if if it says actually if you have X, Y, and Z symptoms, you should see a doctor, then potentially going to see okay. one. But one way to make sure you see a legitimate doctor yes yes would be to call up your insurance company because they will have connections with certain healthcare professionals Ooh. in certain areas so you can always check with them to see who they who they're associated I with never
1: thought to do that yeah and then also uh, preventative things like getting vaccinated of course, like, of where course. do you go to find out which country needs which vaccine
2: so there's a great website called fit for travel again it's a nhs one yeah um and so you just type in your destination it tells you all the vaccines that you need brilliant and then you just go to to your nurse your doctor
1: and just see which ones you've had sorry full of all the wonderful advice for everyone there (laughs) and one of the dreaded things that i get a lot of the nutritious obviously i can work on that angle but what about the dreaded traveler's diarrhea ah yeah it's one of the most
2: common um from travelling and it's yeah. horrible because it can take you it can really take you out of yeah, out yeah. of holiday I mean more often than not if it's mild um, it doesn't need any active treatment other than lots of fluids and oral rehydration salts um, and usually it'll last kind of three to five days and then you're back back to normal yeah. but you can have quite severe um, traveler's diarrhea. And in those cases where you're particularly unwell with it or it's protracted and it's going on for ages and you're getting dehydrated, often you do need to consider
1: things like antibiotics or mm. IV fluids. Yeah, it can get quite serious, can't it? Those types of things. Yeah. And I know a lot of people do general health checkups mm. before they go anywhere. Um, it's something I try and encourage if a client can, just because it's very useful sometimes to see their bloods, to see the status of everything. Mm. What, what were you looking for in a general health checkup?
2: So, usually, on the NHS, certainly, when you turn 40, you're invited for an NHS health Are check. Are you? Yeah. Oh. So, it's one good thing about turning 40, <laughs> hey? Um, <laughs> but in, in those cases, we're looking for things like diabetes, cholesterol. We're checking their blood pressure, their their pulse. We're looking for any of the obvious uh, causes of, of health conditions like diabetes, heart disease. Yeah. Um, and And we even screen for things like dementia at those points. But... Um, I would say if if you're not yet 40 but you're wanting a bit of a a health (laughs) check it it can be quite individualistic so we want to know what kind of um, family history you have have Mm -hmm. you got something that's running in the family Mm -hmm. that we need to screen for Mm -hmm. are you feeling tired all the time do we need to look about look into your kind of iron levels B12 Mm -hmm. levels you know Mm -hmm. all of those kind of things so again I think it is really about seeing your doctor and and speaking to them on an individual basis rather than asking for a multitude of of screening tests I couldn't
1: agree more and I think this is where problems come in with social media media again so as we're recording this podcast there's been a lot in the headlines this week particularly about influencers and different people giving out advice online Mm. so if they don't know that whole health history or even a doctor wouldn't be able to respond on the internet without any information no of course it would be very unethical
2: of course I think you know my tagline is always you know I'm sorry I can't give personal advice over social media that's the thing that people should be saying if you have any kind of professional background yeah you'd be petrified to offer advice when you don't have that kind of
1: um
2: uh you know patient history so i completely agree it's 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 scary that yeah people I are willing to offer advice without the knowledge
1: they don't realize i think they're trying to do good and they don't perhaps quite realize the harm but there are lots of things that can arise like illnesses or conditions where you have very few symptoms of course things like osteoporosis one day you may just fracture mm. a bone and and you just realize that you've got it but what about when it comes to stds could we delve into yeah. that a little bit
2: So STDs are an interesting one because uh ones like chlamydia and gonorrhea, for example, are uh, often symptomless, so four in ten uh, women it, it's symptomless, and so that that's quite a a, a large proportion of, of yeah. women that are probably walking around with with chlamydia that don't know, but that's the importance of getting regular screening Gosh. tests yeah because that's picking up those ones. That have laid there dormant without knowing.
1: Yeah, because there are regular. I remember it being drummed into me at school that there are sexual health clinics for everybody that are free. Is that still the case that anyone can go?
2: Yeah, so there are sexual health clinics scattered around the UK, and they are free, and you should go. But if you're scared to go to one of those, you can see your GP as well. Mm. I'm, I my specialty is in sexual and reproductive health, so I'm like testing
1: people left, right, and (laughs) centre. I'm sure. I'm sure. That's why I wanted to ask: How often do you think people should get? To test them so I would always suggest
2: that it's important to get tested um every time you have a new partner yeah. um so obviously ideally I want you all to be practicing say sex using yep. condoms yep. yes please mm-hmm. um but I also recognize that that doesn't always happen and so I would always say just anytime you have a change of partner get checked yeah if you want to add in an extra once a year just to just to make me me feel better for you then that would be great too or obviously anytime you get any symptoms
1: there is such a vast broad of things that gps have to really be able to deal with and you've said you you do a lot of work in the sexual health Mm. kind of area what about really embarrassing things i mean when i say embarrassing i guess it's not embarrassing to you because you see every body part every day i'm sure what about people that come to you with let's say hemorrhoids or something like Mm. you see on tv on those tv programs embarrassing (laughs) bodies those types of things Um, is it often serious enough to warrant a trip to the doctor something that could be seen as embarrassing um i would hate to think
2: that a patient isn't coming to see me because they're embarrassed yeah that would actually just make that would make me so upset so if you feel it's embarrassing a i promise you it's not i have seen it all it's not embarrassing but b if you are embarrassed Either come have a chat with me about something else first, like, yeah. or, or your doctor, you know, first. Test the water, see if you like that doctor, mm. see if you feel comfortable around them. Then book again another time if you want and speak to them about that thing. Yeah, Write it down if you don't want to say the words. Get someone else to sit in the room with you that you really yeah. trust and get yeah. them to say it for yeah. you. Whatever it is, say it because the majority of the time it's something so small and so simple that I'd be able to treat there and then. It would have mm. saved you from all of that worry. Mm. Or if it is something a bit more sinister then we've got it early and we can sort
1: it out. Yeah. And the thing is, you're a very approachable, lovely doctor, which is why you're on this podcast. (laughs) But I have a lot of people coming into my clinic saying, oh, I can't go to my doctor or my doctor didn't understand. Or, you know, obviously there's going to be discrepancies with it, every profession. Mm. So what can they do in that case? Can they ask to see other doctors? Is that okay? Of course you, you, you have to. I yeah. proactively
2: want you to seek someone yes. that you feel comfortable around. Yeah. Um, the doctor-patient relationship is so unique. Mm. It's something like, you know, no one has that. Or, you know, the same in your profession. You oh, know, yeah. So much trust and, and um, openness is required in that kind of relationship. And if you don't have that with your doctor, the mm-hmm. person that knows more about you than most people, mm-hmm. then, then you need to find someone else. Yeah, that that you do feel like you can be like that around, um, and if your doctor makes you feel bad about se- finding a second opinion, that's not the right doctor.
1: No, I completely <laughs> agree, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for you mentioned this earlier on in the podcast. Doctors that still actively do their
0: continuing professional development mm. and they still engage in things and keep up to time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well.
1: Where does fitness lie in with that? Because obviously we've got the nutrition element, but it doesn't still make a GP a nutritionist. But it's good that they know to spot signs, I guess. But how on earth does that work with fitness?
2: Um, I I think we're given fairly good guidelines when it comes to fitness, actually. Um, So, you know, we're told about the fact that you need to be doing more than 150 minutes a week and how you can divide that up into strength exercises, cardio exercises. There are fairly good guidelines out there. But... I think the important thing is not to be scared to refer on. So, yeah, when does that happen? The referrals, yeah. like,
1: well, do they get referred to nutritionists and fitness professionals? Well, I, I think the problem is when
2: people don't know what they don't know um, and so I know that's a really cliched saying that made sense to me but it's one of those things that you know I can swan around saying I know everything about nutrition I'll tell my patients everything I know but if they're not getting better mm. you need to realise that actually what you know might not be the be all and end all of everything mm. there may be people out there that know a lot more mm. there will be people out there that know yeah, a lot no more yeah no one's ever
1: an expert are they exactly and, the thing.
2: And, and certainly as a GP yeah. you can't be an expert in everything no. So I think it's really important when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to uh, exercise. Actually, when it comes to any part of medicine, if you've gotten to the point where you don't have the answers anymore and the patient isn't being helped, you need to then seek help. So that's when you should refer. When when, yeah. when your patient isn't thriving on the medicine, yeah, on the, on the treatment plan you've com- given. Oh, I
1: completely agree. And are the resources there to refer in the NHS? I guess that's a question.
2: Um, funding's always going to be a problem. Resources mm. always going to be a problem. But our main duty is to patient. And so yes, I might get a little slap on my wrist every now and then because I over-refer, but I'd rather be that over-refer and know that I, I've done everything I can do.
1: Yep. Can we talk about, on that note, veganism? Mm. Um, have you, like me, seen, seen a rise in it? And do you think it's directly correlated with what I'm suspecting, like their bone health perhaps, mm. different nutrient deficiencies, osteoporosis...
2: I do see a lot of, uh, I do see a rise in veganism, but mainly as a result of them coming in for other things. So Mm. I will get a lot of tired all the time patients and you then start asking about their diet and they are vegans. And that's brilliant. That's a Mm -hmm. great lifestyle choice as long as you've made the appropriate steps to to supplement. supplement. But often you'll find that they aren't supplementing as well as they should. um, And that's therefore causing secondary symptoms. So I do see it. Um, I guess in terms of osteoporosis, we don't regularly screen for osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. It's and DEXA so, scan, yeah, isn't it? Exactly yeah, exactly, a DEXA scan. So I, I suspect you're probably right that there is an increase in osteoporosis in patients who are vegan and aren't supplementing appropriately, mm. but I don't have the the resource to know whether that is directly linked. We have specific things that we are allowed to refer for a DEXA for. So if you have certain conditions or if your, you know, BMI is under 19 yeah. or, you know,
1: various other things. But veganism actually isn't on that tick box list. Ah. I wonder if times will change because I think there's going to be, um, and this, again, is a very, very big debate that this wasn't intended for this episode. Mm. But sustainability in the planet and what we're going to do with planetary diets, perhaps we're yeah. all going plant based, how that affects our health status. Is it good we'll get more vegetables? Is it bad that we're going to be supplementing all the time? It's it's a very
2: tricky area. It is really tricky. I think it's so important that... To know that there are other things than supplements, because people yeah. get really bogged down thinking that they have to take supplements. And mm-hmm. I think in your role, you probably see so many people that, that you don't can tell, need to be on them. Yeah, <laughs> you can say you don't need, you don't need that. You are eating a well-balanced diet. Yeah. You know.
1: Well, they will be by the or, time they yeah, finish the with system. me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so I'd like to think that we'd be able to still have a sustainable planet yeah. whilst also maintaining Appropriate health statuses, but um, I do think you're probably right. We are going to notice big shifts within, within health mm. towards different areas. and mm. you know before we, we knew there was a big shift towards heart disease because of lots of red meat, and now that that's yeah. moving out. Maybe we're going to move from that, but over to something
1: like: osteoporosis. I know, And then there's even an economic kind of thing with different mm. socio-economic groups and how that will impact that. Oh, it's, it's, uh, that is another topic we'll have My to get field. you back for to discuss something else. Um, on that note, you appeared, and I know this because you're friends of Lucy Mecklenburg, who yeah. I also adore. you have been on Bear Girl's The Island. Wow, first of all. I <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> don't really know. It looked um, extreme, to say the least. Oh yeah, how did that affect your body? I think it affected
2: all of us physically and emotionally. Um, It's psychological impact was was bizarre. Whilst out there we were all quite irritable, you know, annoyed at everything. (laughs) I got back and the psychological impact of it kind of carried on I ended up becoming a bit of a food hoarder which was something Ooh. I'd never experienced before I've always had you know a fairly good relationship with but food you were in
1: famine for so long
2: exactly and then suddenly I'd come back and I'd be offered a, a biscuit and I would eat half of it and I would I remember storing half of a biscuit in or in like my drawers or like at work I'd be like oh I'll, get, I'll save this chocolate for later I knew there'd be more chocolate available to me at yeah, any point yeah. I wanted but I was still in that psychological mindset of I've got to store as much of it as I can, just in case. It makes perfect sense, though. It was, though, it was weird. Yeah. That lasted for for about a month, actually, month or two, and then I kind of got back into my my normal habits. But that was a, a really weird sensation for me, and I can I can only imagine that's some way like how some people feel about their relationships with food and and you know the the desperation when it comes to food um, physically it was
1: horrendous um, you, lost, you lost so much weight so we quickly did. as well and your energy just looked drained
2: yeah so I, I was actually lucky I probably lost the least I lost about a stone and other people lost significantly more um it probably says a lot about my eating habits but it um, <laughs> means you're a good survivor <laughs> yeah maybe um and so I felt physically drained for ages I I love sports and it's the one way that I manage my kind of mental health and anxieties I always just run and that clears everything up Mm. and I remember getting back and um I was so desperate to get back into running again that I went for a run with my husband at the time and I just broke down into tears in Wandsworth Park because I just couldn't run I remember just being like what's happened it's like all your muscles have been eaten away yeah muscle mass everything had Mm. gone it took me about a year to get back my muscle mass
1: and the stomach, and what about your digestion? Because obviously that must have been impacted hugely. Oh yeah.
2: So I mean, whilst we were out there, we were all massively constipated until we all then end up getting E. coli, and then we're very yeah. <laughs> loose. Yeah. Oh. Um, but our yeah, our bowel habits just went a little bit crazy for for a while after. Yeah. Um, it yeah, it took took a while to form a normal stool. I was going to say, <laughs> well, they were
1: very lucky to have you, a doctor, with them in there because you know I think you made a very good team when oh, you were when you so were kind. on the show. Would you ever do anything like that again?
2: I I would I I love the idea of pushing yourself to see what your body can do because I think our bodies are incredible and I think they can they can survive and thrive in so mm. much and in our modern day society we don't give our chance, ourselves that chance and um, so to be given that opportunity to see what my body can do and what my mind could do is incredible but Maybe not
1: specifically that show again. <laughs> I don't think I need to put myself through that. Again. <laughs> I have the biggest smile on my face. You actually remind me a lot of Lucy. You yeah. both got the same drive there. <laughs> um, so we've got lots of questions from followers to go through with mm. you. um The first one is from Chris. And Chris says, What is the difference between calling 999 and
2: 111? Okay, so 999 is for uh, an immediate emergency mm-hmm. so um, you've got a fire you, you're being robbed mm-hmm. you've, you're having chest pain yeah. You know, those are the immediate types of things 111 is where you need advice so yeah. they'll be able to um, direct you to the appropriate type of healthcare service that you'd need they may be able to book you an emergency appointment okay. or um, they'd be
1: able to tell you where to go okay. um, if you need help Right that's a very good breakdown so Hayley has asked I think my nan might be showing signs of dementia oh what can I do oh bless her so yeah. dementia
2: is so close to my heart my mum has dementia yeah. and I think it's one of those ones that really doesn't get uh, recognised early enough um, and it's often family that are really scared to, to come forward about it because they're actually scared about what the outcome's going to be um, and so it gets diagnosed so so late on if you're worried please just go with your nan to your doctors they'll often just do a few blood tests maybe a scan because there are lots of reversible causes of memory loss yeah. and so it might just be something as simple as a low vitamin b12 which yeah. can be supplemented can and everything will be gr- brilliant yes again. yes but and so, so i don't want you to worry prematurely but if it is that you will get the support
1: you need yeah no that's a really good answer um, and because it's close to your heart as well i think it's something that we should obviously speak a lot more about as well yeah um jade has said that my mum has high cholesterol should I get my levels tested because what if they turn out to be high so there is familial hypercholesterolemia oh, yes. that was a mouthful but
2: yes. essentially it's a genetically based um high high cholesterol mm-hmm. so in some people it is worth getting checked um if you're if you've got a, a family history of mm-hmm. it in in my opinion I I'm a fan of getting things checked I'm a fan of preventative
1: medicine so if you can try and prevent things from becoming something else why not why not Totally agree, totally agree. And then the final one, Nita has said, my granddad has type 2 diabetes. How much weight does he need to lose to reverse his diagnosis?
2: Now, it is all slightly individualistic. Mm. Um, it kind of depends on how bad his diabetes is, yeah. you know, what his body weight is. We do know that a loss of body weight has been to, shown to improve uh, blood glucose levels Ooh. and in some people can reverse their type 2 diabetes. Yeah. So it's definitely worth trying to lose weight. Um, in patients who are on that borderline, we know that a loss of 5% of body weight along with regular, ex- regular exercise can reduce the risk of developing diabetes. So um, for... For anyone out there on that kind of borderline aspect do think about weight loss if
1: if you are overweight oh great great advice and like you said once again we are all individual and that leads me on to my favorite part of the podcast which is the fact or fiction round mm. okay are you ready oh god <laughs> yes, got- she's ready so you are fact or fiction okay here we go food can cure chronic diseases fiction (laughs) heart rate is an accurate measure for health uh fiction you can be overweight and still be healthy Uh, um so
2: this one i got a little (laughs) bit of a a, a go go for it go for it why because um it depends on your parameters of health yeah so Someone can be overweight and run up 20 flights of stairs and that would be considered healthy Mm. if that's your parameter. Um, But we also know that you may be more at risk of developing other conditions like type 2 diabetes, Mm -hmm. for example. So it really depends. I, I can't really give you a
1: straight answer for that one. i'm actually very happy you elaborated on this of because of course you can be healthy at various sizes and shapes but like you said the parameter is very important taking paracetamol too often stops it having an effect
2: taking paracetamol too often can lead to other things <laughs> like you can get um headache induced par- um, paracetamol induced headaches for example right. so, um <laughs> It, it's not necessarily that it'll lose its effect, but it can lead to other things that you didn't want. Oh, she's such a pro.
1: <laughs> Cracking knuckles leads to arthritis. No. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> vaccines are unnecessary and can be dangerous. No. Home food intolerance tests work. Home food. No. <laughs> good. So that I was, was like, a good like, note. Definitely fiction <laughs> there. Um, starve a fever, feed a cold. Starve a fever, feed a cold. Yeah, it's that's it's that old saying that my mum used to say that you starve a fever and you feed a cold. What's, uh, uh, as in when you have fever, you just don't. You eat. it's not That's horrible. Soups. I know it's horrendous, That's isn't it? It's mean. like Victorian.
2: No, just <laughs> eat when you want to eat, and don't eat when you don't. God, <laughs>
1: just, just, <Christ. laughs> No offense, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Your
2: mum's wrong. <laughs> oh, I
1: love it. Um, <laughs> we should drink at least 1.5 liters of water every day.
2: Everyone is different. If you exercise loads, if you are, you know, out in the Sahara, you may need more. And the opposite is true. There we go. Uh, sitting is the new smoking. Uh, pr- probably. I, although together it's even worse. <laughs> Great. Well done. That was the end of the Fact or Fiction
1: round. <laughs> One of the most funny ones you had. Okay, so that nearly wraps up this episode. But as with every guest, we finish with a food for thought. So mine today would be that practicing health professionals like myself and Sarah, by virtue of our relationship with our clients and patients, have a duty of care. And we are bound by a code of conduct and ethics approved by government legislation. Now, most of us would like to be healthier and learning about the role diet plays in this should always be encouraged. But unfortunately, as long as the term nutritionist remains legally unprotected... Anyone can call themselves a nutritionist regardless of whether or not they have any formal training. And meanwhile, many doctors and GPs are frustrated that nutrition doesn't even form part of their existing medical training. It's therefore never been more important to approach the right health professionals that we've spoken about today to work together and collaborate in the best interests of the public. You are all worthy of the very best care when it comes to health. So always seek advice from a qualified health professional, whether it's your GP or it's diet advice you're after. So be sure to reach out to a registered nutritionist or dietitian. So if you were to leave our listeners with one final thing, one last food for thought, what would that be?
2: I think it's with regards to should I Trust My Doctor? Mm. Um, I know that was kind of the working title for this. Yes. And that got me thinking, you know, you often hear the phrase, trust me, yeah. I'm a doctor. Yes, that's why. Yeah. Your doctor is entrusted with signing your passport. Your doctor mm. is, you know, hardworking, reliable. They're an integral part of society, or else, mm. so I like to think. <laughs> but along the way, there have been doctors who've let patients down. We know that there have been the shipments of the oh, world. Gosh. There's been the doctors of Wacko Jacko who operated on him when they shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. You know, people... People that are inappropriately prescribing for money and monetary gains. And like any part of this world, you've got the good, the bad and the ugly. So should you blindly trust your doctor? My answer is always no. Mm. I think you and your doctor have a relationship like no other. It's, It's a sensitive, private type of relationship. And it's just about making sure that you find a doctor you're comfortable with. I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I know my consultation styles are quite relaxed. Sometimes I crack a joke or two. And there will be people that hate that. Um, And so I think it's important to make sure that you build a rapport with your doctor. You know, I've got patients who, who, when I ask them about what what would they like from this consultation? They turn around and abruptly say, well, you're the doctor, you tell me. And that's just not the style I I do. I like for us to have this kind of dialogue. So I think if you don't like your doctor or you don't feel comfortable around your doctor, just move on. Find one that you do feel comfortable around. And moreover, it's okay just to not trust something your doctor says it's okay to go online to to google it to go back to your doctor and say actually I found this and this I'd like to try that instead that's okay and never feel stuck with your doctor Mm. honestly they would hate to know that that's the way you felt and if they knew they should actively promote you and encourage you to find someone that you do feel good around
1: Wow, I I think that's definitely one of the best take-home messages we've had, Sarah. Um, It's so, so refreshing and very useful for everyone. Sarah, thank you very much for coming on Food for Thought. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. It really is heartening to know there's such a craving to hear from expert voices in a world full of confusing advice. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love what's coming next week. So make sure you click subscribe to be the first to hear it. And please do leave a five-star review. It really does help to get our podcast out there and hopefully help more people. So we'd really appreciate it. For more information about my Retrition Clinic books, healthy recipes, events, retreats, and so much more. Please visit Retrition.com, subscribe to my newsletter, and follow me at Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.